That brings us to our consideration for today, and it's on the security of the Word of God, and this comes out of John Williams in his book on the Holy Spirit. And he writes, we live in an existentialist age which has largely abandoned intelligence for sensation, sense for nonsense, and rationality for psychedelic mysticism. Therefore, we must be scrupulously honest and exact in our understanding and exposition of Scripture. Our criterion must not be subjective and relative, but objective and absolute. Glowing, experience-centered testimonies are one thing. But what we really need to hear is the authentic word of the Spirit through Scripture. Well, I feel that may be uh, uh, ephemeral as the morning dew and only as healthy as my liver. What I hear and know to be the word of God is as secure and stable as the eternal Lord himself. And this is from John Williams, out of the, uh, his book on the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and that's where the problem is. is you, uh, I really was talking to somebody this week and what really is true is that you have a bunch of mamby-pamby beliefs today. Mamby-pamby. And as people are unwilling to, to believe the truth and to speak the truth. They've been backed into a corner and told that, oh, what you're saying is politically incorrect. I don't care what you think. What is true matters. If it ain't true, I don't have time for it. If it ain't true, I have no time for it. It's what's true. Scripture encompasses what is true, what is real. And if it's not true, I don't have time for it, really. And so you, you just, you're, we're in a situation in our society today, and it's not only just today, it's all been throughout the course of uh, time, that the truth has been under attack. It's under attack. And people are unwilling to, um, to yield. I mean, you know, you can see persecution and, and these kind of things really stop people from believing what is real and what is true. And it's really sad. I think that the church should not yield to things that are not true. We shouldn't. We ought to take stances on what's true. And so you look at the early church, they, they had no problem with this. And they were willing to suffer and die for what they believed was true. And so we find ourselves in a society today where there's just a bunch of mamby-pamby beliefs that really doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And so this guy, he hits it out of the ballpark with that. And so what are you putting your, your confidence in? And you, when it's come to the, the church, I mean, we see this, and, and particularly with this issue of agape love. So the church has been directed into so many different directions that it's been directed away from the thing that the church needs the most, which is, as we've been talking about, the fact that the believers should love one another. Love one another. Now, you have a lot of different relationships, and I know that you have relationships with friends and acquaintances and people that you know. And unfortunately, and even in some marriage relationships, there exists this issue where there's not any depth of the relationship, Right? It's just surface relationships. It's okay to have surface relationships with your coworkers. I hope you're not having depth of relationships with them. <laughs> but when it comes to believers, 
uh, particularly in a, a marriage situation, there should be some depth to the relationship. Some depth to the relationship. That you're not just two ships passing in the night. There's a relationship that exists where there's depth to the relationship. And you could see that there is no, there is in the, in the, uh, the body of Christ, there is a depth among believers because we're knitted together that surpasses any kind of relationship that there is in this world. Now, you might have unsaved friends. And I've, I've seen this with people that I know that are unsaved. I can sit down and I can talk to them about certain things. But do you know even talking about sports ain't the same when you talk to unsaved people? It's just not the same, is it? Bring up any subject matter you want to bring up. And when you talk to people that are unsaved, it's not the same. And you can just tell something's missing. You can't identify what it is, but something's missing. But you can have that same conversation with a believer, and it's totally different. So we come to Colossians, and Paul tells the church at Colossae that he was agonizing for them. Why? There was an alternative that some could possibly take with their sin natures. And what does it undermine? The opportunity of being able to take advantage of the fact that we have been knit together in love. That love causes a special relationship in the body of Christ you're not going to get anywhere else. This is why it's highly important that you marry somebody who's a believer. You marry somebody who's it's an unbeliever, they don't have a desire for this. They're not going to be able to identify with this. I, I think that we're all okay because everybody went through the new membership class with the fact we don't pander for people to come to the church. This church is not going to be for everybody. It's not. Because some people are looking for entertainment. They don't, they're not really looking to be taught. They got all kinds of little things that they're looking for. And hey, all we try to do here is we just try to do teaching. <laughs> right? It's not going to be for everybody. I'm okay with it. If it's only five people, I'd be okay with it. It doesn't bother me not one bit. As long as these believers are all enjoying what we enjoy in the body of Christ and the potential that we have to really experience true love among each other and to be able to, as a result of that, reflect out God's life to the unsaved world. How many does it take? Do you know God doesn't need a whole lot of people? He doesn't need a lot of people. You can see through the course of Scripture that that's the case. Remember Gideon? Remember how he kept telling him to pare down his army? You got too many? You got too many? You got too many? You got too many? You got too many. He doesn't need a lot of people. That's world system stuff to think that you could need this big monstrosity. You need all of these people. You got to have this huge building and this huge program. That's world system stuff. When the believers are able to enjoy this knitted togetherness that we have as a result of love, it produces the kind of life that God wants produced in believers. You talk about evangelism, there's your evangelism. It's not a bumper on the back of a car. It's not me wearing a cross or some cross earrings on my ears. 
it's life lived out in real time. And you will see that that makes a huge difference. So we're going to look at this word for knitted togetherness and what it really means as the believers are able to enjoy this love among each other. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful to as believers that we have the ability to be able to really enjoy this life that we have as a result of uh, your son indwelling us and the implications that it has uh, among each other, among ourselves, and how we're able to um, use agape love as a means of um, building each other up and to be able to accomplish those things that are well-pleasing to you. And we're thankful that it's an effective tool in being able to <clears throat> keep the body unit united and, uh, and, uh, and moving in a direction that accomplishes those things that you desire. We're so grateful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So we have this issue in Colossians chapter 2. And so Paul is writing to a church that he did not see in person. And so uh, Epaphras was a, the emissary that came from Colossae. Uh, and he sent this letter back by Epaphras. And, uh, and he wrote to them. And he was just giving them some admonitions about things to be aware of. And in chapter 2, we pick it up, and in verse 1, he says, For I, I would or I desire that you knew what great conflict I have among you. <clears throat> and that's an interesting word there, is that um, word for conflict is actually the word agonizo. Uh, we comes through in our English for to agonize over something. Um, it's used actually of a, a contest uh, in certain places uh, and the intensity of the contest. Uh, for, that I have conflict for, that I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together. <clears throat> now, I went back and forth, and we'll see. I really think this is um, what is uh, called a locative of sphere in a sphere of love. Could be instrumental. I went back and forth, back and forth over this as to which one it is. And we'll look at the tr- different possible translations of it. And unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the mystery of really it's of the Christ. Now, notice this word for knit together. It's a very a fascinating word. It comes from the word soon bino. And this um, soon, our soon preposition, <clears throat> we don't do this a lot in English, but the prepositions in the Greek language are really important because they, they add depth to the words that they're joined to or they're, they're, uh, they're, they occur with. And so you have the word soon, and the best way to describe it is that when you have a soon preposition, you have an intimacy together. So if me and Joyce are walking down the street, that's soon if me and Scott are walking down the street, it's meta. <laughs> it's not soon, Scott. <laughs> it's meta. So <laughs> there's a loose association with, with meta. You're together with somebody, but it's not an intimate togetherness. When soon, it's more of an intimate togetherness with that person. right? So this is important. So you have this uh, soon, and it's lo- hooked to this word um, uh, actually, it's translated babazo, but it comes from this word bino, and the word bino actually comes from bathmos. Now, this is important as you understand this word and how it's being used. And this word for bathmos, it has this definition, a step or a stair 
or a grade of dignity, a degree, or a rank, or a standing. But I think that what you see with it is that there's depth to something. There's depth to what you're looking at, um, either in a physical thing or in a behavior. There's depth to it, right? Now, let me show you one place where you see this particular word used. is over in First um, Timothy 3.13. And then we're going to look at a, the uh, bathos word. This is the bino word. And then the, the bathos word, which is similar to it, it has a similar uh, outcome with the idea of depth. So notice in First Timothy chapter 3, and it's talking about the office of the deacon. <clears throat> so there are qualifications to the office of the deacon, as you well know. So we have two people who are going through these qualifications now. And it says, verse 10, and let these be proved. And the word proved is a dakamazo to put put to the test, to see what's there. Then let them use the office of deacon being found blameless. Even so much must their wives be grave, not slanders, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of the deacon will purchase to themselves a good degree. Or this good degree is our word. And, and actually, it's interesting how they translated a the good degree because <clears throat> they have a good reputation. And that good reputation comes from the depth of how they're handling the office. You see, so there's depth to it. <clears throat> You don't see today there are a, there's a lot of superficial behavior today. You see people, you don't really know who they are. They're very superficial. All you see is what's on the outside. And you can tell in a lot of situations there's no depth to them. And so uh, this word has the idea there's depth to something. There's depth to it. It's not superficial, right? And how many times have you said you've been in a situation with friends <clears throat> and you talk to them? Uh, I was thinking I was watching some years ago this picture and it says a guy made a statement in a room among a lot of people and everybody looked and said, and one guy says, I think we all have been made worse for you having made that statement. <laughs> and this is kind of what happens with a lot of people. There is no depth to them. And the depth comes from conviction, from understanding, from you know, knowledge of various things. And so you can see that. So this word, it really drives that. That there is depth. depth and what we're going to see is there's depth to the relationship among believers. And it, it's not something that necessarily you have to foster. It's something that comes really as a result of, in one hand, because of the fact of our relationship of who we are in Christ. And then it comes also as a result of, I believe, um, it's nurtured and, and, and meted out as the believer is able to direct agape love. And probably love is just reflective of the depth that's there. Really.
And let's look at this word bathos. It's used. It's not on your outline. I just threw this in here for free. I'm not going to charge you for this one. In Matthew 13:5, you see it used in uh, a couple of places that we wanted to point out. <coughs> Matthew 13:5. And so it's used here in the parable of the sower. And the seed, as it was thrown on the ground, it did not flourish because it had no depth to it. It didn't have, it didn't have any depth to it. And so notice here in uh, verse 1 of uh, Matthew 13. And by the way, as we come through here, I just always want to remind you that the parables are not the Lord trying to make it easy for people to understand. In fact, he used parables to conceal truth. Not to make truth easier to understand. And you see that in verse uh, 10 uh, and 11. So notice in verse uh, 4. And when he sowed some seeds fell by the wayside and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth and forthwith they sprung up because uh, they had no depthness, no deepness of the earth. There is no depth of the earth. And so they didn't go down deep enough uh, into the earth. Now, you can see this with uh, inanimate things. Uh, You can also see them in relationships, that there's no depth to relationships, right? Um, And so you can be in situations where, you know, friends are, what do we call them? Acquaintances, right? They're just acquaintances. There's no depth to the relationship there. You just say, ah, I know that person. First Corinthians chapter two and verse 10. First Corinthians chapter two and verse 10. Now, here you find with regard to doctrine that there is the depth of the things regarding the things of God. And so uh, in the context here, Paul is talking about the things that God has prepared for those who are loving him. And we know that not all believers are loving God. We know that the unsaved man doesn't have the ability to love God. Not every believer is loving God. You see, John tells you in first John four, how do you love God? Well, it's the subject we're talking about. By loving the brethren. Best way to show your love for God, love those whom God loves. And really, you don't have to go around saying to the believer, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. You know, you can say that and not believe, really mean a word of it. But you can show your love for God by showing your love for the brethren. So notice in verse 10, so Paul is talking, he says there is a there is a there is a a a doctrine that God has provided for the believers who are loving him and those who are maturing. And so here he says in verse nine, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have it entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them. And I would translate it for them that are loving him. That are loving him. Not every believer is loving God. You again show your love for God 
by loving the brethren. And I'm not making it up. Just go right back there in the first John chapter three and four. And he clearly defines it for you. That this is how we show our love for God. Now. He, and then this thing here, that the things that God has prepared, he's not talking about things in the afterlife. He's talking about things right now. This is not what's going to happen when you die. He's talking about things that God has prepared for those who are loving him right now. Verse 10, but God has revealed them unto us. Now, if you follow this word for things all the way through, and you'll see it, it keeps going all the way through this context. God has prepared, revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searches all the things, yea, the deep things of God. There are things that that come from God as the Holy Spirit are making them uh, manifest to the minds of believers that God wants believers to know. Now, notice he keeps on in verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit which is in, in, uh, of the man, which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit from God. Now, we have not received, we have received not the spirit from the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know what? The things that are graciously given to us from God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual words. And so notice the the things, these deep things that God can reveal to those who are loving him that you would not know any other way. The Holy Spirit is the one that is the teacher. And he teaches you these deep things. You know, you can go and, and, you know, a lot of different places. And boy, we, when we got out of seminary, we moved back to Oklahoma. We tried to find a church in Tulsa, which is the Mecca of religion. I mean, you go to Tulsa, there's churches everywhere. It's interesting that we couldn't find one. <laughs> Not one that was teaching anything of any consequence. And I, and I would tell you, the worst time I had working for FedEx was working around people who are heretics. And sometimes it was better to have worked around unsaved people <laughs> because of these people who are heretics. They just they can't let their heresy go. <laughs> and they want to continue to perpetuate it. But they are not going to be able to understand the deep things of God. And you and I can't understand it if we are not in the right relationship to the Holy Spirit. And he's able to teach us deep things from God that you're not going to get unless the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to be able to do that. And so this idea of depth. So now you take that with Sun Babazo, and it's actually it's from this word, Sun Bino, togetherness intimate togetherness, depth, a together depth. There's an intimate depth. And I think that what you're going to see it's describing is a relationship among believers that is special. 
And it's different from any relationship, other relationship you're going to have. And I know you see these unsaved people out there and you say, oh, they're not that bad. Why? They're nice people. Well, they might be nice, but I want you to know that the unsaved person is not going to be able to have this kind of relationship with you that you have with another believer. And they're just not going to be able to do that. You know, like I told you, I used to watch David Letterman back in the day when he was not too bad. And he had these stupid pet tricks on. I shall never forget that they had some animals doing some of the most amazing things. You know, you can teach animals to sit on the potty and go on the potty. Some people have been able to do that. But let's not fool ourselves. (laughs) They're still animals. They're still animals. They're not human. They're animals. And you can teach the unsafe man to do some interesting things, but they're still unsaved. So in composition soon with the, with, uh, means with the depth together. Now, I'll give you three definitions here. Now, Leonida says it's to bring together into a unit or to bring together to cause a unit, to cause something, to bring it together, to cause something to be a unit. Uh, Joseph Thayer says to cause, to coalesce, to join together. But I would give it this definition. It's the depth of unions, union between persons or ideas. The depth of union between persons or ideas. You're going to see its use uh, of ideas as well. And so it's the opposite of being knit together. And the only way I start kind of thinking through, well, what would be some examples of the opposite of this? I couldn't find the antonym to it, but you could see that in Corinth would probably be an example of it. So if you look over in Corinth, uh, Corinthians, uh, look at the, let's look at First um, Corinthians uh, chapter one and verse ten. And so the opposite could be this: that in Corinth, instead of there being a union together, there was what? There was schismus. Uh, the word schisma, ma, the result of a rent or a tear, right? And so you have people within a whole and they start splitting off into different groups. Or we're actually looking at the, the splitting of that. <clears throat> Notice in 1 Corinthians 1.10, <clears throat> Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now I, this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Apollo, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you but Christophus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptize in my own name. And I baptize also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptize any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with wisdoms of wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And what was causing the divisions here? Human wisdom in the world. Human wisdom. The world has a wisdom of its own. And it appeals to the fallen nature of man. And man wants to be seen as attaining to this wisdom. 
and and it can cause problems. And so that came into the church at Corinth, and it caused problems. Now, this word sumbabazo is used in Scripture to describe the depth of information uh, able to uh, available to discern. Now, it's interesting enough. Look at Acts 16, and, and Courtney was here earlier this morning, and he talked about um, <clears throat> this. Uh, he was uh, uh, in this chapter. Now, this is talking about Paul. As he's going over, he and Barnabas tried to go over into Myasia and Bithynia. <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit, excuse me, he and Silas, and the Holy Spirit preventing him from going, right? And so he, they, they were trying to go over here, and the Holy Spirit said, not, you're not going there. And so then they're trying to discern, well, where, where do we go? And notice what happens in verse 7. And after they were come to Myasia, they were assayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Already, he, he hindered them. He caused them not to be able to go over there, probably through some circumstances. But this, uh, and verse 8, And they passing by Myasia came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us out, and, and help us. And after he had seen the vision, Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering. That's kind of weird. There's our word there. It's translated assuredly gathering. Um, that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Now, I think that there was a depth of information that they had had. That from something that they saw, that they put together and they concluded the Holy Spirit's telling us to go this way. That this is the direction that he wants us to go in. You see it used again <clears throat> in Acts 9.22 of the depth of information that Paul used to confound the Jews. And in the ninth chapter, notice after Paul um, becomes, uh, after he's uh, illuminated and he believes, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 22, uh, notice here in verse 20, And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he was the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for the, that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? So they think that Paul is putting on a ruse here, that he's faking it in order to try to get in and, and get more believers. And notice in verse 22, But Saul increased the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And so this idea of confounded uh, is the idea of this, um, this they, uh, uh, excuse me, it's not confounded, it's proving or putting together um, through information that this was the very Christ. Now notice, it is used of depth of relationships in the New Testament. Uh, notice in 1 Corinthians 2.16, this is really important, now, we were over in 1 Corinthians 2, and I intentionally didn't go down further because I knew we would be back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, this is a mistranslation here, and you probably want to, if you have your interlinear, you can see that this is not translated correctly. If you don't, well, you have to go check me out. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, notice in verse 14. Well, let's pick up where we left off in verse um, uh uh, yeah, in verse 14, but the natural man 
receives not the things from the Spirit of God. Now, who is the natural man? It is the soulish man. And so the man who is unsaved, he is not guided by reason or by his spirit because he's not saved there. So what is he guided by? His soul, right? He's a soul man. You've heard that song. (laughs) I'm a soul man. Well, they didn't know they were talking about the unsaved. (laughs) It's just totally soul is how they're guided. It doesn't mean that they don't think, but here's what it means is that when you're soulish, you, your rationale is guided by taste, touch, feel, sight, sound. You run everything through that gamut before you make a conclusion, you draw any conclusion about things. And so, the natural man, he receives not the things from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual... So you have a natural man pertaining to the the soul, and then you have the spiritual man, which is pertaining to the spirit or emanating things from the Holy Spirit. He that is spiritual discerns, that word judges, he discerns all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Here's a good way to know that here's a guy who is spiritual. They're making distinctions in the word of God. They're not just willy-nilly, just... um, just taking everything and not, not judging it or weighing it. Verse 16, for who know, who hath known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, here's, here's how this should be translated. And if you have an interlinear, you can clearly see it right there in verse 16. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's the question. The one knitted together with him. You see? If you look over in your inner linear, you can see it. They really put it right down in their inner linear. And the translation, I don't know. I didn't check the other translations if someone else got it right. But in this translation, it really, they don't really do a good job of saying this. It's the one, and here's our word, Sumbabadzo, the one who is knitted together with him. Uh, but we have, notice, we have a quality of the mind of Christ. A quality of the mind of Christ. So how does that work? So just imagine. It's kind of like, you know, when you think about the space shuttle. And then the space shuttle goes up to the space station and it docks to the space station. Right. It now has access to the space station. It doesn't become the space station. You see. We have a quality of the mind of Christ. We can think and see things the way that God sees them as we're illuminated by the Spirit. That's just an amazing thing. Further separating the notion that there's any, any it's a correlation between you and the unsafe man. They don't have this. So this idea of being knitted together with, the, with God. Now notice in Colossians 2, and so the apostle describes both the proper atmosphere in Colossians 2 and the result of believers being knit together, of the knitted togetherness of believers. Now notice he, he, he goes on, and this is our focus here in Colossians chapter 2. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, verse 2, that your hearts might be comforted being knit together um, by love or uh, in a sphere of love. As I told you, I went back um, and forth. Now, if it, if it were the instrumental use of, of in, 
And this is, you have to really ask yourself this as you're trying to translate scripture. What, what is this? So if it was in, uh, as an instrumental, it would be that love was the instrument by how we're knitted together. Or it can be, it's what is called a locative of sphere, that means you're in an atmosphere of love. And that's contributing to being, of the knitted togetherness, that believers are being joined and knitted together. Right? And that's what I think is happening here. If you think differently, well, I won't argue with you. Both of them could actually uh, work. Uh, but notice that their hearts might be confident being knitted together in love. And so we've been talking about agape love. And so we see this word in this in preposition used with agape 26 times in Scripture. The phrase is used here to emphasize the, um, the love that is shown again toward the saints. Let's look at some of these. Look at 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. So remember, agape differs from any other form of love. We have eros, we have phileo, we have um, uh, uh, storge, thank you. We have storge and we have agape. Storge, family love. Eros, sexual love. Phileo, fondness, a friendship. Agape, self-sacrificing. Self-sacrificing. For the one that you are directing love to. Now, notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, I can understand why um, uh, Tina Turner says, what, what's love got to do with it? She was probably talking about eros. <laughs> or, you know, phileo. She wasn't talking about agape. She wasn't talking about agape. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Let, let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is, um, I, I said two, it's 21, I'm sorry. Chapter 4 and verse 21. For the kingdom of God is not, in verse 20, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Should I come to you with a rod or in love, in a spirit of meekness? Paul is um, a little beside himself with the Corinthians. Now, I don't think that he's talking about bringing his rod over and beating them with it. <laughs> but I think he's talking about the tenor of what did they want him to come with. They were contending with him so much. It, it was really difficult on Paul. Now imagine ministering to people who you led to the Lord who are even questioning whether you're legitimate. And it's over in the 12th chapter, they tell him over in 2 Corinthians, uh, he tells them, the more I love you, the less I be loved by you. And you can find that that's true. And he's saying here, the more he directed agape love toward the Corinthians, the less he was loved by them. You can actually give agape love to someone and they not fully appreciate that you're giving it to them. So notice in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Uh, believers were chosen because of love. I think it's 1 4, actually. Yeah. 
And so Paul writes in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so that we're in the preposition there, translate again, this idea of being in an atmosphere or a sphere of love. And so you see it used um, in 415, notice, uh, concerning believers. Uh, wherefore, I, um, if I turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up unto him in all things. Or really, I would say, truthing it in an atmosphere of love. And so, sometimes it's hard to say things to people that are true. Right? But if you love them, you'll tell them the truth. You wouldn't want someone, I would hope that somebody would not tell me, as my wife corrected me when I said tooth, I said teeth. She says, no, it's tooth. (laughs) I mean, Sometimes there's correction that needs to happen. (laughs) Well, you don't want someone to make a buffoon of themselves or to be in a situation where they're going down the wrong pathway. And you just say, oh, you shouldn't do this, but okay. Love causes you to be truthful with people. And they may not like it. And in many instances, they're not going to like it. But, you know, again, that's why I think Paul says, the more I love you, the less I be loved by you. When you tell people the truth, they may not love the fact that you're telling them the truth. Yeah, but it is what it is. And so you have this idea with this in preposition is what I was trying to show you is that it's an atmosphere of love and things come from that. Notice two things that are described as a result of being knit together is uh, entry into all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. He says a couple of things here that we're not going to be able to have time to delve in. And then entry into the knowledge of the mystery of God, the father, and I would say and of the Christ and we're not going to have time to bite that off, but there's the things that the believer is able to understand. I don't think that most believers understand the depths of what God has provided for you and I to understand and how it affects you and I in the here and now. A lot of it is when we're not spiritual, it just sounds like blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't mean anything to us. And if we're not learning, if we're not in a situation where we're being taught correctly, then you miss it as well. But he says some interesting things there, and I wanted to jump over to the last point here. A comforted heart can result from knit together believers. And so notice, now he's tying this point here. He goes back in Ephesians, I mean in Colossians 2, and he says his desire for them is that their hearts would be comforted. Now, we were talking about another word similar to this last week, and this idea of comfort. Now, I do think that parakaleo, which is what is talked about here, is an appeal 
to the will of believers to accomplish some task, whether it be found in a rational or they be founded in a rational or an emotional state of mind. And so you're appealing, hey, come on, you can do better. Let's go this way. But do you know there's times, as we saw last week, that there are believers who are emotionally distraught and the only thing that you could do for them at the time is, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know, this happened to me. I've been through this. I've had somebody that has died before. It's going to be all right. And there are times when you don't, the believers are not going to need a dissertation from me on the doctrine of eschatology. <laughs> they just need someone to say, it's going to be okay. God's going to do it. And so you have this, uh, and he says here is the idea of an encouragement and appeal to those. Have you see this word for parakaleo? is seen in an appeal to those who are under duress. They're under duress, and there is an exhortation that is given to them. Hey, come on, you can move forward. It's going to be okay. God's got this. And that's a little bit different thing. And notice in 2 Corinthians, because we've been talking about this, and we talked about this verse in 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians, notice, I just love this verse. Now, whenever I had the occasion to sign a card for someone who passed away at work, I always put this scripture. I don't know if the person understood the scripture. I prayed that they did. But it's, it's the best that I could say. Right. Notice in Second Corinthians here, chapter one. Verse three, blessed be the God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. God, he, he, he encourages us in all of our pressures. And why does he do it? Notice, he says, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort where when we are also, we ourselves are comforted from God. And the idea of comforting and exhorting someone who is in afflictions and pressures. Sometimes you can be in pressures and you just become irrational. The pressures can cause you to be irrational. And you're not seeing things the way you ought to see them from Scripture. An exhortation will come along and say, hey, come on, you can do it. Hey, this way, it's this way. This is the way. And you can encourage someone in doing that. And I think God uses believers to do it. Notice in verse six, he goes on to say, and whether we be afflicted is for your consolation or your or, um, encouragement and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same and so you see that used. It's also used in, uh, seen in an appeal to the will of saints who are living in a certain way. Notice in First uh, Thessalonians chapter two and verse eleven. First Thessalonians chapter two and verse eleven. And Paul used it even among these believers over here in Thessalonica. In verse eleven, he says, "As you know how we exhorted you, and we comforted you." And charged every one of you as a father does his children. And what was the purpose of the exhortation? 
that you might walk worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom and glory. You see, perikaleo, which is used here of encouragement, uh, he actually translated exhorted. It's different from consoling someone. You see these two words used together here. So on the one hand, you can encourage someone and exhort them. Hey, come on, let's go this way. Sometimes, what did it say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Comfort the feeble-minded. You can have people who are of little soul and their emotions are so out of control, they just need someone to say to them, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. God's going to do this. You see? And so you see these two words. Now, what, what is happening here? He says that your hearts may be confident. Your heart is not this little beating thing right here, as it's talked about from Scripture. Your heart, as it's talked about from Scripture, is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And I would probably say that that's probably three of the most important things that you operate with in this life. And if your heart is not right, and if your heart is out of kilter, you're going to have problems operating. We see it today. We see it today. There are people having heart attacks, and it's not their physical heart. <laughs> Notice here, the heart can be troubled. Look at um, John chapter 14 and verse 1. John chapter 14, verse 1. So as the Lord was getting ready to go away, he told the disciples that he was going away. And he starts off in verse 1 and he says, really, I would say, stop letting your hearts be troubled. That word uh, terrasso, this agitation that can come to the heart. And I really believe that that's really where the mind is being affected. And it's affecting the other two aspects of it. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Believe You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And so he's exhorting them concerning what the truth is about why he's going away and what's going to happen in the future with the belief that it was going to cause them to have some relief from this agitation of, of heart. In my Father's house are many, not mansions, it's dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. Now, see, I used to see that when I was younger, and it says dwell, um, mansions, and I'm thinking, well, heaven's not going to be any different from earth. <laughs> mansions? I mean, I just couldn't reconcile that in my mind. Well, when you understand it, it's not talking about mansions. It makes a big difference. The hearts of many can be affected um, by this. Um, the heart can be affected by, by tribulations. Look at uh, Luke 21 and, and verse 26. Luke 21 and verse 26. Now, it's an interesting thing in the tribulation period. People say today that we're in the tribulation period. Okay, let's, when you look at scripture, I think that people in the tribulation period, and I've said this before, they're going to look back at these days. You see, you think these are bad times? Everybody would agree that these are probably not, these are not the Andy Griffin days, right? <laughs> no, these are some bad times. But people in the tribulation period are going to look back at these times and think these were the Andy Griffin days. These were the good old days. That's how bad it's going to be in the tribulation period. Now notice, Luke writes this, and notice in verse 24, and he says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, 
and they shall be led captive uh, away, talking about Israel, unto all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the, by the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles uh, be fulfilled. And so we're, we're right here at this issue of the Gentiles uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, really, it goes a little bit past that until the millennial, until the end of the tribulation period. And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring and men's hearts failing them for what? Fear. Fear. The fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I just love that. I love the end of a good book. See, I don't you could tell me the whole story of a movie. People say, oh, I don't want to ruin it for you. I don't care if you ruin it for me. I always go back to the end of it anyway. That's all I'm concerned about is the end of a story. And this story, it ends great. Because here you see the tribulation period and the things that are going on there are going to be of such horrific nature. Never has it happened before or ever will happen again. That men's hearts are going to fail them for the fear of the things that are going on. And so your heart is a huge thing. And so Paul was writing to the Colossians and he was talking to them about the importance of their hearts being comforted um, as a result of um, the things that he outlined here in, in, these, in, in verse 2. He says that your hearts might be comforted being knit together in a sphere of love. And so there's a depth of knitted togetherness among believers and that atmosphere that when the believers are directing agape love among each other, that I think it even increases the depth of that relationship. Agape love is a huge thing in the body. Now, you and I can go out and do many good things in the world. There's a lot of noble things that you and I could do. No, no end to those noble things. But one of the things that is apparent that God really wants us to do, love the brethren. John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. No way around it, fellas. Gals, we're in this together. You might not like me. You might not like my things I say or do. But you know love can give you forbearance against that? Love conquers everything that is necessary in the body of Christ. It really does. And it makes a huge difference when we focus on directing that love to one another. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful to that as believers that we have the opportunity to be able to love one another by this thing that the world might be able to know that we are ones who are, uh, that belong to you as a result of the love that we show toward each other. 
Not only does it do that, it builds up the saints, it encourages and comforts the saints, it provides so many different things for the body and for the, uh, in order for the body to operate in the way that it should. And we're so thankful for that potential that is there in your son's name we pray. Amen.